and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. Off to a slow start there, huh? Yeah, I'm a little, <laughs> I, I'm a little uh, flummoxed. I, uh, I traveled in one day. Granted, it was just a drive, but uh, Jen and I went to Palm Springs yesterday because she had to shoot a wedding, and I basically just spent an entire day in a hotel room. Uh, you gotta love that. I liked it. That that was the thing is I wanted to. I wanted to. She, you know, we got like a like a per diem, and oh, cool. so um, so it's like, oh, I I, I want to go out and I can go see a movie right. or something like that. But it was just like every first off, this time of year is pretty bad for movies usually. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, so the movies I did want to see, I know that Jen wanted to see as well, and then. Any other movie would be a movie I would have to talk myself into. Um, although, you know what? I wouldn't have had to twist my arm too much to see Rambo. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I want to see it because it's something I want to behold. Yeah. Uh, well, I saw August Rush the other day. I know you did. For $2 at a second-run <laughs> theater. It's heartwarming. I, I, I so uh, we got to get to business. we got a lot of yeah, stuff, we got a lot of stuff to, to take to care of. About. Um, I wanna say, uh, first off... Um, the if anyone who uh, did not listen to episodes thirty nine and forty because of the horrible buzz in their ear, and I can't right. say that I blame you, it's been it's much much better now. You yeah. can go back and listen to those now. It's safe for you now. Yeah, um, and uh, I mean, there's it's it's amazing. One of our one of our listeners, we've made reference to him before. I don't remember his name. What is his, his name? Is Ryan? Ryan. Um, he uh, was good enough to to scrub those two episodes, and uh, it's. It's amazing. I don't know how he did it, but I'm happy that he did. So, uh, and we like those episodes. So feel free to go back and give them a listen. Um, okay. And I'll go ahead and say this: uh, episode uh, 43 or 43 A and B, which is the one we split up into two. Yeah. Uh, looking at our numbers, we assumed that we wouldn't have to tell people that it was split into two. But looking at our numbers, it has become clear to me. A lot of people are listening to 43B, way more than 43A. And so I'm sure there are a lot of people listening and are confused. Like, why do they just start you know mid sentence? No, anyone who's confused by that, we're not, we, we can't help them. <laughs> That's true. There's nothing we Even can say. Even this explanation, they're going to be like, whoa, 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 <laughs> hang on now. A letter following a number? That's not for me. Yeah. Um, All right, so let's move on past okay. that. Uh, but I will say this: uh, we don't. Uh, we try not to comment too much on our uh, on our listenership lately. Uh, but uh, we've had a bit a bit of a boost in our listeners, and so yeah. But which is has happened before. Usually, if like IMDb will feature us or right. something like that. This time, it's like one of the bigger bumps we've ever gotten, and we're we have no idea why. By one of the bigger, you mean by far the biggest, and I. Yeah, I was trying to be a little modest. Whatever, but uh, yeah, here's the thing. No, we are. I it's think, modest because it's us, you know. Right. Just <laughs> us saying, "Oh, it's our numbers tripled," which, by the way, they didn't. But like, our numbers tripled. It's like, yeah, it's if you, it's still not very impressive. <laughs> um, but uh, but, but yeah, I'd, our, I'd say we are we are pleasantly mystified. Yes, um, and of course, I just I have to look and give Taurus in the mouth and be like, "Why did this happen?" But uh, so if you're one of our our. our uh, New listeners, we we do appreciate you listening, and uh, so you know, thanks. And if you want to let us know how you found us, uh, please do battleship pretension at hotmail dot com. So right. let's talk about something interesting now. All right, um, let's see Oscar nominations, David. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, what do you have to say about it? <laughs> well, uh, for, I would say for the most part, I'm very uh, pleased. Um, that's what I had to say about it. Why? Because well, it's the Oscars, for one. That's well, what I have to say about that. the Oscars all the time. Yeah. And B, this is... I swear the, the, the people who are doing the nominating, all they're doing is just reading magazines and trade magazines and saying, well, clearly everyone says that Hal Holbrook is a lock, for, so we better fucking nominate Hal uh, Holbrook. There's no surprises at all. The only the only surprise it's it's one that people saw coming for probably about a month, but six months ago I never would have thought that there will be blood would have been up for anything aside from actor uh, and, and maybe some technical awards as well. But a movie that is that we've I mean you know we talked about it it's it's a very uh, messy 
kind of a crazy movie. Mm. And uh, movies like that don't usually, you know, aren't usually nominated, you know. and uh, For Best Picture, you mean? For Best Picture, certainly. And uh, so I was pleasantly surprised with that, although, you know, you could pretty much call it a month ago. But, you know, up until then, I certainly didn't think it was going to happen. So it was, it, that was exciting for me. But... Uh, yeah, not a lot of surprises. Nobody that I was really, you know, I was like, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's nothing terrible, like, why was that person nominated? But, yeah, the, again, no surprises at all. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk more about that uh, on our Oscar episode, if we actually have one. Um, now, <laughs> da- now, David, what, uh, what's your take on the ceremony? Do you, do you want it to happen? Do you not want it to happen? I mean, if the strike's over, then yeah, I want it to happen. <laughs> well, yeah, but if yeah. the strike is not over, then no, I don't want it to happen. Yeah, I, feel- uh, I mean, who benefits more from the award shows? The producers or the writers? Right. I mean, obviously, it's more. The producers get far more oh, yeah. congratulations and and you know, uh, uh, I don't know, allegorical hand jobs <laughs> <laughs> from the Oscars than the writers do. Um. Yeah, uh, I do enjoy uh, the ceremony of the Oscars. Um, I always like to see what they do different from year to year. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, if the Oscars are you know canceled or whatever, like that's a that's a friggin' that's a huge blow, you know. And and that would be very exciting uh, for the writers. So so I'm a little torn. It's one of those things where I'm like, come on, writers and producers, let's settle this before February 24th. Um, <laughs> But I uh, should tell. Um, I'm really glad that there's a, a supporting actress nominated whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, that little girl from Atonement. Oh, the little girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I haven't seen Atonement. Right. But by far, my favorite part of the trailer is when she goes. <laughs> <laughs> Cracks me up every time. <laughs> uh, that's that's us, everybody. We just. Go by words from <laughs> the trailer. And... I mean, she's just emoting far too much for someone her age, <laughs> or not not too much, but uh, it, it's it's the wrong kind of emoting. Oh, okay. It's very. You've seen the trailer, right? Yes, I. You have. know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. It just it just comes across as very precocious, <laughs> in an in an annoying way. Which yeah, precociousness, precociousness is pretty much always annoying to me. Usually, um, act your age, kids. <laughs> That's what. I but you know say. what, kids? If you don't act your age. Oscar nomination. That's usually how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, all right, so I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't have much to say about it. I, not, there's not a lot of surprises, and for the most part, it's like, oh, all right. A lot of movies that I liked were nominated, so there Now, you did go. you expect uh, Zodiac to get anything at all? Uh, I didn't expect it. I would have liked it, too. Uh, but, uh, no, I didn't really expect it. I three you know it's one of those things where three months ago I would have thought it was like kind of a front runner, mm-hmm. um, but then just kind of it you know other movies started pulling ahead like uh, Juno, which I saw Juno by the way. Yeah, you told me. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't hate it. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of backlash, and I'm not one of them. I think uh, I think the acting is absolutely great, but uh, for the most part, it's like uh, it's not. I'm not sure if I'd nominate it for picture and director. Seems a little strange to me. Um, but I, I thought, I really thought Zodiac deserved an editing editing nomination. Hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, I think, not that I care what anything gets, but I just right. feel like thinking like the Academy, it seemed like editing was something that Zodiac would, would qualify for. That's because true. They, I mean, it's, it's a long movie yeah. that doesn't feel long. It moves quickly. Right. And, uh, I mean that that seems like a, it's a big it's a fairly big prestige type of movie. Yeah. It seems like that's the bone you throw it. With a somewhat of a not necessarily an ensemble cast, not in the way of like crash or anything, but you know, it has to juggle a lot of, you know, a lot of characters and a lot of events and not make it as you say, not make it feel sluggish. So it does seem like it's it would be uh an editing nominee. Um Yeah, yeah that's unfortunate. Um but I always feel weird when uh, like a lot of people say, how can something be nominated for best director and not best picture? Because right. you know who's making the. I it's it seems sort of the same way for me with editing. Like if it's the best edited movie, it's probably the best movie. <laughs> editing is. I mean, I don't know. Uh, this this is sort of a controversial position among some of my friends at film school. But editing okay. is 
what makes film its own art. Editing is the yes. only the only art form involved in film that is 100% new. Yeah. To, that was it didn't exist before film. I I mean I there never... are like certainly cinematography is when you you add the time element to photography so it's right. somewhat new but it's still rooted in photography. Editing is the only original art form that takes place within film. Yeah, I uh you know, I never really had much of a respect for editing. I I I knew good editing when I saw it, but I didn't really it just didn't really register and then I got to film school and actually had to to edit yeah. stuff and all of a sudden you realize like Oh, this is the backbone of filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> now I get it. And uh, you can really, you can change a film completely. I mean, you can turn it from a drama into a comedy. You can really do almost anything you want with uh, with a piece of footage through editing. And uh, hmm. Yeah, and that's why I say that if it's up for best picture, it should be up for best editing, you know? Um, hmm. Like, I mean, I guess there are some exceptions like i would say like that blind spot hitler's secretary that documentary that's pretty much just her talking to the camera the whole yeah, time yeah that movie is resting on other things besides <laughs> editing but <laughs> most movies that are great are are well edited yes i would i would agree all right next topic next topic <laughs> this uh, is the mclaughlin group of podcasts yeah uh sorry everybody uh i think we're we're both feeling a little a little i'm a little sleepy yeah so yeah but uh, I'll try and I'll try and pick it up a little bit, uh, and no, what better way to pick it up than to talk about the death of somebody? Um, so yeah, Heath Ledger, uh, his death, and you know what? Here's what I'm gonna do. I I feel I feel bad for Heath Ledger. I feel bad for Brad Renfro as well, because literally, <laughs> even in his tragic death, does he get overshadowed by somebody else, like somebody bigger? Yeah. I mean, it just it, it made me sad. I always thought Brad Renfro was a good actor. And uh, where I'm interning right now, which I actually can't tell you where I'm interning, but uh, people there worked uh, with Brad Renfro. And Listen, so, I know where he's interning. Right. Email me on the side and I'll let you exa- know. <laughs> um, okay. Not, not really, um, of course. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so yeah, around, around the office, uh, there was – everybody was very sad. Uh, and then a week – you know, and then a week later, Heath Ledger – uh, died and everybody was just like, "Oh my god!" Every- and it's like, "Oh, you guys didn't even know he fledged." I feel so bad for Brad Renfro. Uh, yeah. That said, Heath Ledger's death is uh, is very tragic because it sounds like it was very much uh, an accident in the sense of like he wasn't even really like doing anything remarkably harmful to himself. It sounded like he was ill and. Just like ha- took like the wrong combination of pills or something. Yeah, that's like what that. it sounds like. Which is that's very sad to me. Uh, you know, especially when it's you know uh, when he's got a uh, a kid and all that kind of thing. But uh, but here's here's what here's what I wanted to say about it. So it's it's very tragic. Everybody knows that, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing him as the Joker. Um, like you and I have been vocal on the podcast about how we weren't really sure about it like my first instinct like what come on you don't give the joker to a leading man you give him to a character actor who maybe hasn't worked in a while that's what you do give it to my my vote was always for tim roth but anyway um and uh and david you were a little skeptical as well about him playing the joker right well yeah you know but i shouldn't be because i my skepticisms are the same as we're going into batman begins and those ended up being obliterated right like i just I have something of a problem with the trying to root the superhero stories in reality. Right. You know, it seems like that's not where they belong. But yeah. Batman Begins did that really, really well. Really well, yeah. So uh, I, I shouldn't be uh, apprehensive about the Dark Knight at all. Yeah, and once we saw the trailer, I mean, all worries uh, went away. I mean, I really, I'm looking forward to seeing it, and I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, it, just such an interesting note to end your life and career on is just a psychotic and yet humorous character. Uh, now, but, the, the IMDb still lists on his filmography the the Imaginarium of the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, which is the okay. Tim Gill- Ter- uh, Terry uh, Gilliam Terry Gilliam film that he was yeah. making. But I don't think he shot enough of it for it to. Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be recast. Is what right, I'm hearing. Right. Provided, of course, that they continue with it. I I for. Uh, 
somebody in in my office said this, and then actually Zaljanon, who has been on our show, yeah, he posted something basically saying that Terry Gilliam is the most cursed filmmaker uh, <laughs> to ever walk the earth. Yeah, uh, which is probably true at this point. I mean, you know, you, you hate to make light of somebody's death and put it that way, but it's just like, man, Terry Gilliam cannot catch a break. Um, but uh, but I did want to say one thing, David, in regards to, to Heath Ledger's uh, death and the people's response to it. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I was uh, infuriated when I... David, you know who Fred, who Fred Phelps is, right? Yeah, I'm aware of Fred Phelps. <laughs> My position on Fred Phelps is that people like him are best ignored, but... Let's break that rule. And oh, talk about should it for I? A second. Do you want me to just remain silent? No, we, no, we, we should okay. talk about it. Well, what I want to do, I don't necessarily want to attack him because what's the point? But what I will say is that you know, our listenership being what it is, Fred Phelps, he's been very he and his church, quote unquote church, has been have been very, very vocal about um, Heath Ledger being a what they call a fag enabler. Which I will admit is a ridiculously funny term to me. Just like, <laughs> just like, uh, they've, you've got actual lingo. That's yeah. awesome. But um, and it's just, you know, I read that and, I, and it just like seriously, I, I don't understand how they how they spend their time. I mean, what are their? I I kind of want to go to that church and just see what their what the sermons are during the during the Sunday. I mean, is it all? Hate-filled speech. It, I mean, it must be. I don't even think it should be. They should be considered a, a church. I, I don't yeah. think that. I think like spirituality or what have you is clearly playing second fiddle to hatred right. of homosexuals. That that's their reason for existing and their their excuse for it. It is, is the church. What strikes me as interesting is like you know they want to protest his uh, at his uh, memorial and stuff, and it's like yeah, it's probably not for you know the Patriot or various violent movies that he was in. It's only for the one that has to do with that. And it's like, yeah, what about stuff that glorifies death? Nothing. You got nothing to say about that. Okay. That's fine. But, um, but anyway, so what I, I guess what I wanted to say, and maybe I'm just too sensitive to this kind of thing. Um, but it's always frustrating when somebody like Fred Phelps or Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, it's usually the, the Christians who are least like, every other Christian I've ever met that uh-huh. get the most press and they seek it out. It's right. not, I'm not going to say there's like a conspiracy that where someone's like, put these guys on the air. Um, that'll make them look bad. You know, they seek out the spotlight and they get what they want. Um, and so just, I guess I just want to assure people. It's like, in case you were wondering me and my Christian friends, we don't like Fred Phelps. We think what he does and what his church does is horrible. They're horrible, terrible people. And like, I just, and I, what I don't, and, and David kind of said this, I, I, I try not to speculate on the spiritual life of somebody I don't know, or even people I do know, but uh, Fred Phelps, I would say is not a true Christian. He may call himself that, and he may even believe certain things, but he is so far from actually implementing the things that he quote unquote believes that he might as well not believe them. And, and it's just, we, we spend so much time, me, I and people like me send, spend so much fucking time doing damage control for these people that it's exhausting. And it's just, ah, we don't like them. Please rest assured, please don't judge this belief system based on these horrible, terrible people. That's all I had to say. Sorry. Okay. Um... <laughs> So that woke me up a little bit. I'm this sorry. is episode forty-five. Sorry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my! And uh, yeah, okay. Th- th- thanks for that. Uh, okay. Anyway, yeah, no, seriously. Episode forty-five. Every fifth episode, we profile somebody. That's right. Uh, so let's get to it. Um, we haven't done a writer before. That's right. It was suggested to us that we do a writer. Yeah. A screenwriter. Yeah. It would be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, helpful. No Hemingway today. Yeah. But here's the thing. In and we're going to do a writer, but here's the in, in in researching my favorite screenwriters of all time, I found that most of them are directors. Uh, yes. And, and and should probably be profiled as as such. Right. Uh, you know, Woody Allen. Mm. Uh, uh, I've decided upon doing this research that my favorite screenwriter of all time is Billy Wilder. Yeah. But 
not only is he more of a director, we already talked about him. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, that was out. So we sort of decided to go with the obvious choice. Right. Uh, pretty much uh, the most... Uh, I guess there are two screenwriters... Uh, I guess three with Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. That people think of... Uh, that most people would think of without thinking of... You know, directors, right? Uh, and that's Charlie Kaufman, of course, uh, Robert Town, yeah, and our subject today, William Goldman, yeah. So we're we're talking about William Goldman, and uh, just because he's got a he's been more prolific than Robert Town or Charlie Kaufman, yeah. And uh, we're also breaking our our rule of that's right uh, of uh, doing dead people, yeah. Um, yeah, it is kind of weird because people. <laughs> People will often ask me as a uh, as an aspiring writer. They're like, "Well, who you know? You should profile, you know, some of your favorite dead screenwriters." And I'm like, "Okay." So I go back and look, and it's like, all these people are alive. Why won't one of them die? And uh, or either that, or there will be a screenplay that you know I love, Patty Shaevsky, but I've only seen three of his movies. He hasn't. He didn't write that many movies. He wrote a lot of plays, and he wrote a lot of stuff for television. But yeah. he didn't write that many movies. Yeah, I know another guy that I had thought of was Clifford Odets, but he mostly did. Oh yeah, he mostly did 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 plays. We could uh, we could profile Aaron Sorkin one day, but he's he's still alive. Um, well, so is William Goldman. That's right. So well, William Goldman is no spring chicken, by the way. I mean, how old is he? Uh, let's see. Um, he was born in 1931. 31. So that would make him uh, 77 this year. You know, he, this is a morbid. August. This is a morbid thought, but I, I appear to be in that kind of mood. Uh, wouldn't it just be kind of awful on a few different levels if he like died this week? And it's like, damn it, we could have saved it, and it, we wouldn't be breaking any rules. But uh, <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's um, awful. But uh, all right. So William Goldman, his probably his most popular movie I have not seen. And you have also not seen. Yeah. Is, is, would you say it's his most popular? I think so. At I the guess, very least, yeah. because I've been running all over town, various libraries, various video stores, looking to rent it. It's nowhere. They all carry it, but it's checked out everywhere. Uh, hmm. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Do you think it's checked out now because the Sundance Film Festival is going on? Maybe. And they're, they're like... They're like, oh, th- that Sundance thing is going on. I want everything that has to do with Sundance. <laughs> um, so yeah, we haven't seen. Yeah, but I will say, I, I will say, and people are probably going to be upset with us. They're like, why are you profiling this this guy when his you know most popular movie <laughs> when you haven't seen it? Um, and I don't know. Uh, I I tried to see it. I assure you, but uh, but I I did look up several memorable quotes and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on on the IMDb, and uh, and at the very least, it's an insanely quotable movie. Um, okay, and uh, very witty. I didn't do any of this. I didn't go to any effort, or this effort that you went to. Well, you know, I like to be uh, as prepared as possible. I did, however, w- watch uh, Red Rock West on DVD last night. I hadn't seen that in a while. All right, it's a good movie. Fair enough. It has nothing to, nothing to do with William Goldman <laughs> at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily talk about. Uh, a movie that uh, that I haven't seen, but I will say that it's just it's a very it's just very witty. It, the lines that I've read and that kind of thing, and this, the large portions of script that are available on the internet. In fact, you can probably find the entire script on the internet. Um, and w- wit and levity and stuff is something that I will be bringing up a lot during this episode. But we'll save that for later. Now, what's next on your list? Next on my list is uh, All the President's Men. Oh, so another one of his... He's got a lot of popular, famous films. He, he certainly does. Another yes. one that neither one of us has seen is The Stepford Wives. That's right, yes. The, the original. I was looking for that one as well. Uh, yeah. Mm. Meh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. Are we saying meh to what? What are we saying meh to? The Stepford Wives? Oh, Stepford Wives. I thought, we were, I thought you were saying meh to All the President's Men. No, no, no. no. Okay. I'm saying meh to The Stepford, Stepford okay, Wives. Okay, fair enough. Um... Yeah, so all the presidents men. You've seen it. Uh, yes, I have seen it. Okay, probably I saw it. Actually, uh, it's probably the worst print of a film that I've ever seen projected. Oh my. I saw it at Doc Films uh, in in Chicago. Okay. I saw it on Thanksgiving Day because I didn't go home uh, for Thanksgiving that that year. But everyone else I knew did, so I was alone in Chicago, a snowy Thanksgiving Day. 
in Chicago alone. So I got on the train and I took it to the bus and then I took the bus <laughs> to Doc Films on the south side and I saw a terribly shitty print of all the President's Men. But much to the film's credit and certainly much to William Goldman's credit, the film was still good. You know, it was still enjoyable despite the fact that there was a it was a shitty print. On uh I thought I was the only one to think in, in these terms, but I, I once was listening to uh, Never Not Funny, and they were talking about movies that they will have to sit down and watch whenever it's on. And oddly enough, and I mean, they talk about, you know, Shawshank Redemption and, you know, L.A. Confidential and that kind of thing. Very watchable movies. You would not think that All the President's Men would be one of those, but uh-huh. literally the day before I moved from Springfield, Missouri to Chicago... It was like two in the morning, and I was just and I was feeling very uh, you know kind of bummed out that I'd be leaving my family and friends and all that, and uh, so I was just you know clicking around on TV, and sure enough, all the president's men was on, and they're like fifteen minutes in, uh-huh. and I know this movie is like two hours and ten minutes, and I'm just like son of a bitch, and I watched the whole thing, <laughs> so um, because it's just it's it really is a movie that just sucks you right in. And uh, it's a it's a great movie on every front, but I think it really is an, an achievement when it comes to screenwriting because it is it's a movie that feels like a documentary. Now I know a lot of people say that about certain movies, and I don't think it often applies when they say it. Mm-hmm. But all the president's men, would you say? I mean, especially the stuff in the newsroom and when they're interviewing people, uh, and those who haven't seen it, it's about. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein and their attempts to, you know, investigate uh, the Watergate scandal and that sort of thing. Um, but it just it feels so naturalistic, which is a, a testament to the dialogue that when these people are relating to each other, it literally just feels like somebody just threw a camera on and you are watching people interact in a newsroom. And yeah, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, and that, I've, I've, I've always. Uh to be honest, I um, had never really given this film a lot of thought in terms of screenplay. I'd always mm-hmm. really appreciated Gordon, Will- Gordon Willis's cinematography, yeah, and uh, and of course the direction, just the whole mise en scène of the piece, which leads, which lends to that that right. uh, realistic documentary feel. But uh, right. I mean, the dialogue is absolutely just as much a part of that, uh, and it's almost it's almost invisible. But from a technical standpoint, um, the fact that uh, the the story unfolds in a way that's very true to the way it actually happened. Yeah, and uh, it manages to be a compelling story. Things in real life unfold that sort of, you know, that they, they don't they don't follow the the story structure. Yeah, necessarily. So to to balance remaining true to the events and uh, find among them among them. Uh, a string that would lead to a really compelling story is a good technical achievement. Yeah, and uh, and what's what's especially interesting is that you know there's all these little victories and all that kind of thing throughout the movie, and that the the climax of the movie comes with a a huge failure on the part of the main characters. Um, but like like that's that's kind of gutsy too that. It goes with them like being com- almost completely discredited because they said something was true and it turned out it wasn't, um, and then you're just like, oh man! But then it and then of course in kind of an epilogue, it goes on to say what proceeded to happen and how they just even after this little uh, failing, they continued uh, to press on and and sure enough, everything was was brought out. But uh, but yeah, it's. And there's a lot of characters it, it must have been so tempting from a writing standpoint. There's a lot of characters who can who must have been a lot of fun to write. I mean the the character that Jason Robards plays, Ben Bradley, their wise old editor, yeah. like who's kind of a cynical guy, like it must have been so tempting to write him as just kind of the this crusty but benign is the only way to say it, you know, uh to put it in Patty Shavsky terms. Um, just this guy who just like always has a, just a really wise word to say, you know, Uh and he just seems like a normal guy. He's a little, you know, he's a little cynical and all that, but 
he really does just seem like your neighbor. He seems like a guy that you knew. He seems like your boss. I mean, yeah, you know that, and then like Deep Throat as well. You know, he he gave him a little bit of mysterious dialogue, but for the most part, he didn't give him any like crazy wise truths or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not like super cryptic. No, not I mean, at all. Yeah, <clears throat> and it was just, and for him to approach the screenplay in such a way that it's like I wanted, I need to write this in a way where people will not remember the writing; they will right. remember the acting, they will remember everything about it, but I want to write it in such a way that does not call attention to itself. Like yeah, he sort is, of, he sort of, he shows a lot of restraint. He sort of gets out of his own way as, as a writer. Yeah. And I mean, and frankly, like if you look at, at like his, most of his filmography, I mean, he's a guy who likes a good, he, he really enjoys a good line, you know, uh-huh. several of them. And for, and so like the one thing that really, doesn't seem to fit is all the president's men, but you can see, but that just tells you like how adept he is at, uh, bending to the will of the director or the material. And because this material required, uh, you know, didn't, because it's all about journalism, it's material that should not be sensationalistic and he chooses not to make it that. And he must've felt incredibly tempted to do so. So, well, good for him. (laughs) I'm trying. We're doing a profile. I'm trying to. <laughs> no, we need to keep keep moving. Okay, sorry. We got one film down. All right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so the next one that I've seen actually came out the same year, uh, which was Marathon Man. And he also wrote the novel. He wrote the novel, and uh, and having and I watched Marathon Man today, and uh, watching it, I it's one of those things. That's, that's today, like, the day we're recording, not the day you're listening to. That's this. yes. I, I, I just I assume that our audience knows how podcasts work, but this yeah. is not live. Exactly. I mean, we got to know. We got a bunch of new listeners. I don't know if they're that's familiar true. with the format. Yeah, this is not so, live. So basically, uh, we just insult the new listeners. Is that what you're saying? Just yes. Welcome aboard, you morons. Yeah, we're not live. Because <laughs> what it does is it makes our core listeners feel more special, more appreciated. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like yeah, I was on from the jump. Um, but uh, yeah, Marathon Man. It, it's interesting because knowing that he wrote the novel and you watch the movie, it makes you wonder. Like, I wonder what the novel is like because I wonder if he wrote it knowing that he's going to be making it into a movie because it it does at times feel like a novel. But I, I really because he's written a few books, right? Yeah. And I I haven't read any of them, but I'd really be fascinated to see their structure. And if in reading them, you're like, Oh, this is a lot like a movie. Um, but yeah, marathon man is, it's interesting from the, from the structure standpoint for a few reasons. Um, and because David hasn't seen it, I won't, I won't push it too far, but, uh, basically there's two story strands, one involving this runner played by Dustin Hoffman. And he gets involved with this woman and you have no idea, and he, he, there's no conflict going on at all. Then there's a character played by Roy Scheider who's essentially like James Bond. People are trying to kill him. He tries to kill and succeeds people. Um, and uh, you're like, what do these have to do with each other? And you don't find out until probably about 50, 55 minutes in. And you find out that they're brothers. And when you find that out, it really is actually quite fascinating. Because all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh. This runner, this this run, this naive runner is not at all prepared for the crap that's going to come down on him. You know, it's like his brother can barely survive this stuff. What's he going to do? And that brings me to the absolute stroke of genius. I would say genius, David. I'm so happy that I watched this movie okay. before we talked about this. Many people, when they associate, when they think of Marathon Man, they think of like a a, a crazy dentist. All right. So, and I, I myself did. I mean, uh, people know about that, but it's just. I know my reference point is actually Gremlins too. There's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's that spoof of it. Yeah, I, it, yeah. And uh, I would, I would compare it to the way Spielberg approached Jaws in directing it. Like he didn't show the shark for a while. Some of it was practical purposes, but the other was that everybody's gone swimming. Very few people are face to face with a shark. Everybody has gone swimming. And probably can't see, the, you know, and haven't been able to see the bottom. 
and probably many of them have wondered, like, oh, man, what if there's something under there that could get me? And so the first half of Jaws, it's all what you can't see. And so he's feeding into people's fear, a fear that people already have. And through that, he introduces a 25-foot shark that people can't relate to, but because he's already filtered it through something they know, it's doubly frightening. Much in the same way, William Goldman takes something that everybody is afraid of, which is dentists. Now, I mean, uh-huh. maybe it's not something you're afraid of, but it, it's definitely uncomfortable. And everybody has had that experience where the dentist is scratching around with that hook and he finds a cavity. And it's one of those like, oh, my gosh. And then once once he finds it, he's like, oh, sorry. You know, and just, you know, and then they he tries to make you as comfortable as possible. Everybody's had that experience. And so, you know, I'm freaking... Every time I'm in the dentist, I'm like white knuckling it because I just know it's like I thought I, you know, I, I think I'm a good brusher and I floss as often as I can. I use mouthwash. But who knows? He might find a cavity and I'm going to be in pain. And so he takes that very common experience and it turns out that Lawrence Olivier plays this guy who is a an ex-Nazi um, and is a very dangerous guy. And But he's also a dentist. And so when he comes when it comes to interrogate somebody, he uses his dental tools, uh-huh. and he basically drills without novocaine, and it's just a horrible, terrifying scene to watch because much in the same way as with with the shark in Jaws, I've never met a Nazi. David, have you ever met a Nazi that you know of? Uh, no, no. All right, no. But we've all been to the dentist and have all been put in pain, and so he finds a way to make this character scary in a that we all can, you know, relate to. And, uh, so those scenes are absolutely grueling because there's that horrible drill sound. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I was actually, it's weird. I was just today, I was watching serial mom, uh, <laughs> which has, cause Sam Watterson plays the husband and he's a dentist right. and it has a scene where he's, in someone's mouth, and John Waters holds on it yeah. too long to yeah. where it becomes uncomfortable. But even and even that is like too much for me. I, oh my god, I can't imagine because and and it's one and it's a, also a bit of brilliant writing that the that Lawrence Olivier pretty much he describes exactly what he's going to do because there's two of these scenes. One, the character finds a cavity. You know, he's uh-huh. like, "Oh, you've got a pretty bad cavity back here," and then pokes it a lot. And so Dustin Hoffman's like, "Ah." And then, so that's the first one, and you think that's bad. Second one, the second, <laughs> David's covering his mouth right yeah. now. The second scene, Lawrence Olivier pulls out the drill, and he's like, don't you worry, we're not going to do anything with that cavity, because that nerve's already dead, and I think I always find it's much more painful to go after a, a live nerve. He's like, I'm just going to start drilling through your tooth, and I'm going to hit the pulp, and uh, that's when you'll be in serious pain. And it's just like, oh my gosh, why did you have to describe it to me? Um, and it's really just a, it's a brilliant bit of writing. I mean, William Goldman knows how to make a person cringe. Uh, so what's next? That said, <laughs> that said, uh, the next thing I've seen is many years after after these two movies. Okay, I I don't see anything. Those were seventy six. The next movie of his that I've seen is The Princess Bride. Yeah, I neither, so neither of us has seen um, a bridge too far. No, but I I, uh, I wanted to. I I meant to rent. It was either between that or Marathon Man, and Bridge Too Far is a a, a bridge too long, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's like a solid three hours, and I just didn't have that kind of time. Okay, so great. Yeah, Princess Bride, another book that he wrote. That's right. Yeah. And I've read that one. I've read that book. Okay. Um, uh, are nah, they not are for they a long s- time? But. Um, yeah, there, uh, in, my, in my recollection, there's there's more in the book, okay. but they're still very similar. Okay. Um, it, does it still kind of have that jaunty, somewhat anachronistic tone to it? Yes. Okay. Um, yes, and it and it it keeps up, even though it doesn't <clears throat> it doesn't have the same sort of uh, book ending device with the you know uh, with Peter Falk and and stuff that mm-hmm. the movie has with the grandpa is reading. Right. It doesn't have that literally, but he does. In sort of a foreword to the book, he talks about he the the premise being that he is that that the Princess Bride the book is actually an abridgment of some old book that his grandpa used to read to him and used oh, to cool. skip all the boring parts, uh, which that you know isn't true. It never really happened. Right. It's an original story, but <clears throat> that's uh, that's where that comes from. 
Now, David, do you like uh, The Princess Bride, the book or the movie? I love it. Okay. Uh, I, <clears throat> I think, I mean, you you mentioned Butch casting the Sundance Kid as being his most most popular, but I think, you know, I think it among, might be this one. Among actually. people our age, especially, yeah. Princess Bride is far and away. Yeah. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, well, thank you for doing that off mic. Uh, that was good, good for you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I uh, the reason that I asked you if you liked it is because for a long time I did not love it the way people do, um, because I always viewed the kind of the little witticism and uh, witticisms and like the clever lines. I always viewed that as a way of him distancing himself from the material. And now that I, you know, now that I've gotten older and I've seen it a few more times and and that kind of thing, and perhaps quite frankly, I lost some of my pretentious film student thing where it's like Uh I have to find a reason not to like a movie that everybody loves. Um, But watching it now, I realize that I feel like uh, William Goldman is all about giving the audience an entry point, you know? And I feel like, I mean, I can't relate to much in the same way. I can't relate to Nazis, but I can relate to dentists. Like I can't relate to uh, rodents of unusual size jumping out at me in a fire swamp. You know, yeah. I can't relate to that. It's a fantasy sequence. Yeah, it's a, a fantasy movie with knights and castles and stuff. And it's like I, there's nothing to get me into this. What's to separate this from legend? Well, what's to separate it is this very modern dialogue that I can relate to, and it gets me more involved, and it gets me more involved in the story as opposed to distancing me from the story. Yeah, and it's just. It's a lot more fun than Legend. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> there's that. <laughs> it's got naturalistic performances, which yeah. Legend doesn't have. Right. It's got, uh, uh, I mean, not only the di- is the dialogue jaunty, but the whole yeah. pace of the film is very jaunty. Yeah. Another thing sorely lacking from Legend. <laughs> uh, uh, only- yeah, I like Ridley Scott and everything, but Legend is not a fun no, not a fun hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, never did I think that uh, that something with you know that a sword and sorcery epic could be such a friggin' slog. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it really is just. I mean, and I mean, there's a quotable movie. I mean, he writes a lot of very quotable movies, but like, but that one, I mean, everybody knows. Free. I mean, I'd say, especially among people our age, like probably easily in the top five most memorable quotes is, "Hello." My name is Nigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Like, yeah. it's just everybody knows it. <clears throat> and what what I like about it, about that line specifically, is that it's very simple. You know, like he he doesn't try. Like he realizes this whole thing is flowery enough as it is. He doesn't need to try and flower up little bits of dialogue like that. I think maybe that's the problem. Like people compared Shrek to the Princess Bride because it takes you know puts a modern spin on like an old fairy tale type thing but like if you actually watch them side by side you realize that princess bride is kind of timeless yeah and i i i feel like shrek is almost like working too hard it's sweating like trying to distance itself from the fairy tales trying trying to it's it's like an it's like an aging parent like looking up uh what, what sort of uh, slang are today's youth using? And then, yeah. and then saying, referring to their son as dog or whatever. You know, that's that's what Shrek is like to me. See, and I mean, it, it felt like, uh, you know, like the writers of Shrek were like, well, we need to, you know, the kids are going to want to see this anyway, so we need to give something for the parents. Now, and I think William Goldman with Princess Bride realizes that it's like, you know what, if it's fun enough. Yeah, good and, storytelling and good characters appeal yeah, to parents. Exactly. You know, and. And yeah, it's just a very fun movie to watch and certainly to listen to. Um, but it's it's also, um, I guess, there's a tendency when looking at, at his filmography to think of him as a, as being sort of uh, very Hollywood, very reliable, very right. a work. William Goldman, I'm talking about here. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I feel like there's there's some uh, almost slightly subversive storytelling going on in Princess Bride. Not politically subversive, but right. just like. Uh, 
it, it's it's fucking with the 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 cliches what we're used to. You yeah. know, but the best example of this is when it builds the tension when uh, Buttercup falls off the in, into the water. You know, yeah. and the eels are coming up to her, and it's like it builds the tension all the way up, and then it just stops. And Peter Falk is it cuts to the present day, and Peter yeah. Falk is like, she doesn't get it and eaten by the eels at this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's so anticlimactic that yeah. it's like bravo, that was ballsy. Well, and and that like. Yeah, and almost every and like the big showdown between the hero and the villain, there is no fighting. Yeah, it's him just yeah. laying there and talking him out of fighting. Yeah, like stuff like that is. And is there's really, a great, great speech. Yeah, I honestly, when I was like in like the end of elementary school and into middle school, I mm. watched this movie so often that I knew every word to that to the pain speech, and I could recite. I can't do it now, <laughs> and I wouldn't if I could because that would be so dorky and annoying. But. uh yeah, I've. This is one of the movies that is probably up there with like Die Hard. Is movies that I've seen more single times than any other movie. <laughs> and I think it would probably be up there for for most people our age. I know my wife absolutely loves it. Um, I, mean, I haven't watched it in a while, um, but I I remember uh, uh, in I was in St. Louis and my friend Melissa and I went to see uh, Road to Perdition. It had just opened, mm-hmm. and and we saw that and we really enjoyed it. But uh, we were like, man, that was a fucking downer. And yeah. Melissa was like, you know, the Tivoli is playing Princess Bride at midnight. And I was like, fuck yeah, let's go see that. That'll cheer us up. Uh, um, the Tivoli is a theater in St. Louis. Right, yes. I think I've... I think we have we went there. You and I saw The the Filth and the Fury there. That's the right. The Sex Pistols documentary. Um, so what uh, what's the next thing that you have seen on, on his filmography? Um, the next film on his filmography is, is Misery. All right. And it's the first of his... Uh, uh, I guess three Stephen King adaptations. Okay, one of them is Dreamcatcher. The other is Hearts in Atlantis. Oh, which I didn't see. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, Misery. Well, what do you have to say about it? <laughs> you don't have to be so standoffish, David. Um, but I feel like William Goldman and Stephen King are 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 a good fit. Uh, yeah, because they put they both put words in characters' mouths that are that can be kind of silly almost hokey you yeah. know but they have an authenticity that's that uh, at least that's what it lends to the character is like oh these people have these little weird little sayings you know and and certainly kathy bates character whose name is escaping me it's like annie wilkes annie wilkes yeah and she's got all those weird little things that yeah. she says you know you didn't get out of the cockadoody car <laughs> yeah exactly and that's uh and that that really both Stephen King and William Goldman use that sort of thing to really humanize characters. Yeah, and uh, because everybody, yeah, everybody's got that. I remember in uh, in the Shining uh, miniseries, not the not the Kubrick one, but uh, I believe you and I w- both watched the uh, the commentary, and uh, Stephen King is on the commentary, and uh, there's a line that Stephen Weber says. He goes, "You bet your dog whistle." Yeah, <laughs> it's just, yeah. and Stephen King just just like he's like. He's like, you know, Stephen Weber really got that line, and that it doesn't mean anything. It's just something people will sometimes say. Um, and yeah, w- and and I've not read Misery. Have you? Yeah, of course okay. I have. Yeah, I forgot that you. <laughs> I've read love- like forty Stephen King novels. Okay. so I, yeah, I went I went through a bit of a fanatical Stephen King period. Okay, um, now, you know, how much of those phrases came from William Goldman, and how many came from Stephen King, or would you say it's a pretty even split? I'd say. I'd, honestly, I'd say most of them are Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, Annie Wilkes is such a fascinating character. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, we were talking about, uh, I guess this was last, or no, this was uh, two weeks ago, I guess, we were, we were talking about, when we were talking about Ratatouille, mm-hmm. we were talking about filmmakers uh, such as Brad Bird and then M. Night Shyamalan and Lady in the Water who create critic characters. Right. You know? Uh and the difference between them, you know, uh, between those two. Yeah. Uh, and, and and the thing is, on on the surface, it would seem that the Annie Wilkes character, as created by Stephen King, it, it seems like a very mean-spirited spirited statement on his, on his... Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a... It's kind of an evil characterization of his fan base. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, but because it's such a... Uh, it's such a lovingly crafted character, and so yeah. wholly... You know, created uh, first in the book, and then with William Goldman and, and Kathy Bates, you know, creating it. Yeah. Uh, 
that that it sidesteps that. Yeah, it's uh, and you know it's odd. I that didn't even occur to me until you just said it. Like, I mean, I I don't think of her as the fan from hell. I think of her as a woman that is crazy and just probably fanatical about every about anything. Yeah. And then just find something new to be fanatical about, which is uh, Paul Sheldon's uh, novels. You know. Well, I, I, but I do still think of it as sort of a uh, as evil as a character is. It's almost sort of a, a friendly nudge in the ribs to the fan base, saying like, uh, "Come probably, on, guys, yeah. get off my back." You know, <laughs> Woody Allen did the same sort of thing with Stardust Memories. Hmm. Uh, you know, that was about uh, what his fan base expected from him and uh, how unfair that was. And, yeah, I will have to watch Misery again through that filter because, as, as I said, I uh, never occurred to me. I usually consider myself fairly astute. Anyway, <laughs> um, but you know what? I, I will say this: that this is, you know, even if little turns of phrase and and you know characterizations, even if they came from Stephen King, and people are going to think this might be a bit of a, a, a cop out explanation, but I don't think it is. A good writer recognizes what is good. Yeah. And recognizes, like, you know what? This is already, this is already good. I don't need to take much away or add much. I mean, you know, at the at the time when John Huston adapted Maltese Falcon, he left it almost completely faithful to the book, which, you know, none of the previous Maltese Falcon adaptations did. Yeah, and his was the most successful, and it's because he recognized, oh, this is already good. Yeah, all I need to do is try and make it you know, put it in this kind of format. And, uh, so yeah, we, we gotta keep moving. So, yeah, but, uh, and I don't, I don't think it'll take us too long to get through the rest of this. Cause misery is really probably the last great film that he wrote. Uh, um, I mean, there's some good ones and then there's some bad ones. Yeah. But it seems like the era of, of William Goldman, uh, started in the mid seventies and lasted until 1990. And now he's, he's still working, but, yeah, uh, um, he's not churning out the the that William Goldman magic anymore. Yeah, and I it makes me it makes me wonder why. Um, he still does have a couple of uh, minor successes. Um, well, we should keep with the chronological and okay. Briefly mentioned memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yeah, which uh, I think is actually pretty good. I don't think it's that great. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen it in a while. Um, and I mean, some of that it just has to do with Chevy Chase. I don't <laughs> right I don't like right. But it is sort of a. It's almost a not not to the extent that the Princess Bride is, but it's taking a sort of genre yeah. and putting that sort of William Goldman, uh, you know, jaunty as you say, whim, whimsical yeah. touch on it. Yeah, uh, in like the like in the history of like Invisible Man movies, they have always been fairly serious um, and. Only occasionally do people realize, you know, have have uh, filmmakers or writers realize like there's a high potential for comedy. Yeah. In these, you know, and I think approaching the character of like, oh, you know, this is what a piece of gum will look like when chewed up by an invisible man. This is what it will look like when he smokes. This is what it will look like when his stomach is churning up food. Like approaching it from like the the practical standpoint like yeah here's how you need to be an invisible man you can't let your stomach be shown you know stuff that claude rain's character mentions in the invisible man he chooses to actually show realizing that there's inherent comedy in that yeah um and it takes it still has elements of like intrigue but i think he realizes like well this whole maybe thing is we can also say that the film isn't that great because john carpenter is not maybe the guy you go to for a comedy True, true. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like such an odd movie. It's like yeah. John Carpenter directing Chevy Chase. <laughs> written mean, by just, William Goldman. Yeah, by it's William a, Goldman. It's just a weird blend. Um, but yeah, it did have a couple in, uh, elements regarding just the practicality of invisibility uh, that I think uh, are very clever. All right, next up is uh, another sort of true life story. like. Right. All the President's Men, but this one's a biopic. Yeah. Uh, it's called Chaplin. And yeah. I haven't seen this in ages. I haven't seen it in a while, but what uh, I... What it's directed I by Richard that. Attenborough, who directed yeah. uh, A Bridge Too Far, which he also oh, yeah. wrote. So. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Chaplin is a, is a is a pretty good movie, and I will say this: that I feel like William Goldman's uh, approach to it might not be the right one, um, because as is often the the the, the case with biopics, um, he chooses to basically like they seem to confuse like the idea of a warts and all depiction with just making a character look bad, yeah. <laughs> making it, making a, a person look bad. And so all the fun and whimsical and, and whimsy that William Goldman brings to previous, uh, projects, he realized it's like he took it out because he realized that Chaplin was whimsical enough, but that the movie's actually somewhat of a slog because yeah, None of the because you get the impression in reading you know biographies of Chaplin stuff that he would be in spite of his crazy you know uh, sexual escapades and and his tendency towards self righteousness um, he was probably a really fun guy to talk to and hang out with uh, and I feel like William Goldman might have been in trying to get us to take him seriously he might have been trying to work against that and I think it might have been the wrong way to approach it i feel like he could have made this could have been a really fun and yet interesting movie but if he approached it the way he approached other projects but yeah. uh he he apparently did not and uh it kind of bums me out because uh i don't know chaplin i think still would be a, a really good uh, subject for a movie it is it sort of reminds me of um chad chaplin movie sort of reminds me of gandhi the movie yeah. which they're both not really great movies, yeah. but with amazing performances at the same. Oh yeah, absolutely. Both Robert Downey Jr. and, of course, Ben Kingsley and Gandhi are just yeah. incredible in those movies, and it's a shame that it's in service of you know less than it could be. Yeah. Uh, so next up is Maverick, which is uh, I'd say somewhat of a return to form, um, where I think it's again like I said with Memoirs of Invisible Man, it sort of gives the Princess Bride treatment to right. to the Western, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, when I think of it, I think of it as, as a very fun and funny movie, um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, on the whole, it's fairly disposable. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, it has a lot of, it, it, it does, it is a shame because after a certain point, it does feel somewhat like William Goldman is kind of, I hate to put it kind of going through the motions, um, and he can take something like Maverick and you know make it kind of funny, but certainly not as memorable as uh, as some of his earlier uh, witty films, you know, like Princess Bride or Butch Cassidy. But uh, but still, you know, amusing. Yeah. And and Maverick was directed by by Richard Donner, yeah. who sort of had uh, had peaked by 1994. I think. Uh, I'd say so. Yes. Um, and I I wonder if Madri- if Maverick. Had if he reteamed with Rob Reiner, yeah, for Maverick, would it have been a better film? I like they, to think it might have. I think their sensibilities work well for for his comedy. Yeah, I think so. Um, oh yeah, it didn't occur to me that they had they made two movies together. Um, yeah, one one. Funny, I always one I never not. think of Misery as a Rob Reiner film. I know, yeah, but, it, but yeah, it it fit. Um, all right, next up is The Ghost in the Darkness. Which I've seen. Have you seen it? I have seen it. I haven't seen it for a long, long time. Probably since, I mean, it came out in 96. Probably been like 97 uh, was probably when I saw it. And what you, what's your take on it? I remember enjoying it, thinking it was kind of stupid, but enjoying it a lot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just seems like a like a big, like a, like it would be, I mean, it's sort of like what, what Indiana Jones was, was yeah. like a, these, these like, short film serials, you know, and that's <laughs> yeah. what the ghost in the darkness felt like to me. Uh, also because it's sort of fragmented and it's, it's not, it's not a very smoothly told story. No. Um, <laughs> you know, I actually, I, like I brought up jaws earlier and it's, it's interesting. Cause like when I think of ghost in the darkness, it's almost like William Goldman's like, you know what movie I like? I like that movie jaws. I think I'll write it. Oh wait, no, it's already been written. <laughs> Maybe I'll just write it with, but with a different animal, because it's it's almost exactly that. I mean, it's got so it's got you know, lions don't hunt like this. You know, it's it's got stuff like that where yeah. it's a lot of very, it is a lot of cheesy fun. Yeah, uh, but it's something that's so it's so familiar. Uh, but it's not a it's not a very good movie. But 
It seems like a movie you want to watch with friends. It certainly... I watched it with friends and enjoyed myself immensely. I remember it being pretty gory. Uh, Yes, it is. Okay. So what's what's next for you? Next up is Absolute Power, which I seem to recall liking, uh, but honestly, it's been so long since I've seen it that uh, I couldn't tell you much about it. Okay. So let's finish off with the last one that you and I have both seen. Yeah. Because neither we have not seen Dreamcatcher or Hearts in Atlantis. Right. I man, I wanted to see Dreamcatcher because from what I understand, that thing is just crazy. <laughs> just That's, yeah. so just in like bad but in a in a in a just an insane way. And so I just I want to experience this movie. Okay, so the last thing we saw was which, the, this is a film that I pretty much can't stand at all, and I know right. you kind of like. I kind of like it, yes. Or at least you like it more than I do. Yeah. Uh, the General's Daughter. The General's Daughter, yeah. Uh, there's one that uh, you you do feel every once in a while, you feel the hand of, of William Goldman, mostly in uh, the dialogue. Yeah. Um, because there it is, at times, kind of funny, and... You can tell the scenes that he enjoyed writing and really, you know, got into, I'd say, primarily the scenes between John Travolta and James Woods. Um, yeah, I didn't really the, like James Woods in this movie. Yeah, it's a good performance. And the scenes between the two of them, there's just a there's a great because it's all it's all dialogue and it's not like expository dialogue. It's not like, you know, how did she die? I don't know. You know, it wasn't it's nothing like that it's pure character between these two and that's it's in those scenes and then unfortunately there's only like three of them but it's in those scenes that it really that the movie really becomes in, I'd say enjoyable and when I when I really started being becoming interested and it's mostly a function of just two good actors performing just really I would say I don't like to use terms like this, but really crackling dialogue. Just a writer yeah. enjoying the scene that he's writing, knowing he's got two good characters and letting them go at it, go at each other. And just the rest of the movie just kind of pales in comparison to those scenes. And that, yeah, I think that's because of, uh, the clunky directorial hand of Simon West, who oh, I my. can't stand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the guy who did the Tomb Raider movie. <laughs> he made Con Air. Con Air. That's right. Uh, I don't remember much else, but yeah, probably a bunch of other, shitty crap yeah i mean I, it makes me wonder what t- <laughs> that was supposed to be funny <laughs> it was funny okay, I, it didn't occur to me right away that you just oh my um yeah it makes me wonder like uh you know it's if if william goldman is i mean this is i guess this could be said a lot whenever you're talking about a screenwriter is a screenwriter sometimes is this this is going to sound wrong but like his movies sometimes are only as good as the director making them, you know, because yeah. if the director is willing to go along with the writer and, you know, you wind up with something like Princess Bride and All the President's Men and Misery. But, like, if the director has a different agenda, as Simon West, well, Simon I'm West sure, is probably not did. a director who I think cares about character or story right. at all. He's interested in... I mean, if you watch one of his movies with the sound off, it looks very much like a movie, if that makes sense. You know okay. what I mean? There's like the... There's all the the, the hero shots, you yeah. know? And it, it's just like everything's just so big and unrealistic and... Yeah. Uh, and there's... there's just overblown. Of, yeah, there's plenty of those in the in the General's Daughter, and it's one of those things where it's like, if you were to just look at this script, you're like, there's nothing grand about this. Why Why is it directed in such a way? Um yeah, and so it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I wonder maybe because he just got so if he just became so popular and so bankable that they started taking his stuff and giving it to directors that are not worthy of the material. Um yeah. But I mean, that's that's what will happen when if and when you're a writer. I mean, there's just some some writer who some writers who like they find a director that they work really well with, and they work with them a lot. Um, you know, Charlie Kaufman works very well with Spike Jones, yeah. and you know, uh, Michelle Gondry and that kind of thing. I can't imagine what would happen as much, as brilliant a writer as I think Charlie Kaufman is. What would happen if Simon West directed one of his scripts? Can you? <laughs> I mean, how insane would that be? Um, you know. So, uh, but yeah. For, but that's the thing is, 
there may be some movies that we've talked about here that aren't that good, but I don't think that's a reflection of William Goldman. I still think he's a very, very solid writer. Yeah, I think who, you. Yeah, you still. You only need to look at his at his resume, as it were, yeah. and to note that he's clearly a you know a, a, a great talent. Yeah. And he's and he contributed some of the you know. Uh, landmark American films of that era, that 75 to 1990, that era yeah. that I talked about. So, uh, yeah, any uh, comments that you guys have for us uh, would be welcome. I should uh, say, because 1969 is when Butch Cassidy and That's right, kid. yeah, yeah. I forgot that I haven't seen that. So he's been around for, uh, you know, 21 years. Well, he's been around much longer. He's been around since he 1931, as we established. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, and so... Our email address is battleshippretension at hotmail.com. Any questions or comments or topic suggestions, new listeners? Uh, If there's something you want to hear us talk about, um, feel free to let us know. Um, As it is, uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.